This is Leo from Hannah, Connecticut, and you are listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming at newhavenindependent.org. Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and today we'll be discussing the novel The Mad Woman Upstairs, first with the author, Catherine Lowell, and then with my guests, fellow readers Sophronia Scott and Tui Sutherland. And stay tuned at the end of the show for our regular feature, a middle-grade recommendation from one of our friendly New Haven librarians. The Mad Woman Upstairs is the story of 20-year-old Samantha Whipple, the last living descendant of the famous Bronte sisters. Samantha's father, an alcoholic writer who was obsessed with his famous ancestors, died in a fire when Samantha was 15. Her mother, from whom she is more or less estranged, lives in Paris. When the novel begins, Samantha has just enrolled at Oxford University to study literature, where she is housed in a strange windowless tower that was home to some of Oxford's most notorious eccentrics. For years, Bronte scholars have speculated that Samantha's father possessed a secret array of Bronte artifacts, an inheritance that would now be Samantha's. Though Samantha has no reason to believe this is true, when a copy of Anne Bronte's novel Agnes Grey, one that had belonged to her father, mysteriously materializes in her tower, she embarks on a search to uncover and recover her legacy. I had the opportunity to speak with Catherine Lowell earlier this week, and I'd like to share that interview with you now. Catherine Lowell received her B.A. in English Literature from Stanford University, and now lives in New York City. Like her character, Samantha, and like yours truly, she is a fan of the perfect hot chocolate. According to her website, she has been known to write limericks, and we may or may not make her recite one here, with a reminder that we are subject to FCC regulations. Catherine, thanks so much for joining me today on Book Talk. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So, Catherine, this is a novel that, among many other things, spends a lot of time pondering the question of authorial intent. That is, whether we as the reader ought to care about how the author intended for her novel to be interpreted, or whether knowing the author's intentions should affect our understanding of the book. In light of that, I'm curious how you feel about being interviewed about your novel. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I love being interviewed about this. I, the reason I wrote the book, actually, I've always just been so interested in, um, you know, how and why people read it all. And uh, especially in college, I became very interested in textual criticism and authorial intent. And I think the discussions around it are just so fun. Even as an author, you can't not have them. So for me, although the Brontes and their works figure prominently in the novel, this was ultimately Samantha's story. I read it very much as a coming-of-age story about Samantha's attempts to come to terms with her history and her own journey of self-discovery. So I guess, first, do you agree with that? And second, why choose the Brontes as a vehicle to explore those themes? Uh, first of all, I completely agree. I think, um, you know, it kind of parallels uh, my own journey, actually, in college, kind of coming to find bits and pieces of yourself through literature, in a way. I think um, learning and being in school and reading great literature is just a great um, uh, self-exploration tool in a lot of ways, um, and especially for Samantha, since she did have a pretty tough upbringing uh, with her father dying young, um, and she's always been somewhat isolated from her peers. Um, this really was uh, kind of her journey becoming more comfortable in her own skin. Um, and actually, I think the, the reason I 
I picked the Brontes, actually there are many reasons, but the one that's most relevant to this point is just, I think the Brontes themselves, I mean, they were so young when they wrote those novels, and uh, I kind of read their novels almost as them coming of age themselves, and, um, you know, especially looking at the Brontes' lives and, and, and what they went through, there was so much struggle and insecurity there, too, that we don't really talk about uh, very much, and we sort of analyze the Brontes, but they were, you know, young people who were also trying to find their way in the world, and especially a world that was pretty hostile to them writing. So I think in a lot of ways, you know, Samantha's coming of age and her exploration of the Brontes, uh, you know, really parallels the Brontes' own coming of age. Do you feel like readers need to have read the whole Bronte oeuvre to understand or appreciate the book? That's a great question, um, and that was actually one of the biggest challenges. I really wanted anyone to pick up this book and be able to enjoy it, whether or not they'd read any of the Bronte books. The problem was, though, I feel like they're so the the Bronte fan base is so large and so varied. I feel like people have very uh, passionate responses to them. So, how do you write a book that caters to them and actually offers them something sort of a new way of understanding authors they already really love and know? But at the same time, how do you make it really accessible to people who have never heard about them before? So that was a fun challenge about it. Um, but yes, I would definitely say I'd love to have people read this who've never read the Brontes before and maybe want to read the, the Bronte books now. Do you feel like having read the Brontes brings something more to the novel? Um, I think so. I think um, the, the most fun part for me of this book was rereading books I loved, which is, of course, Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, Agnes Grey, Tenet of Wildfield Hall, etc., um, and then rereading them to find something new in them. Um, and I think that's where the fun came from for me. So I think people who know the Bronte books well will, will hopefully have fun with that. So you mentioned all of the Bronte novels, and obviously they're front and center in the book. But there are other more subtle literary references and influences so in particular, there are mentions of Daphne du Maurier's novel, Rebecca. There's Richardson's 18th century novel, Pamela, just a very glancing mention of it towards the end, but it comes along mm-hmm. there. Um, and then The Wizard of Oz. And the more I thought about those references, the more I felt like they really helped me understand Samantha's story at least as much, if not more than the Bronte works. So I'm curious about your choice specifically to do those things simultaneously, both to draw our attention to the Bronte parallels and put those things right at the heart of it, but then to have these kind of literary clues of other things that might unlock. Yeah, ooh, what a great question. I um, I think, um, first of all, I mean, those, those references were certainly deliberate. I think um, literature kind of has its own trajectory um, in terms of everything's kind of built off what's come before it, even if, you know, novelists don't think they're doing it. <laughs> I think we owe a lot to what's come, uh, what, what, what's been written in the past. Um, and I think, you know, especially, I mean, you mentioned Pamela. Jane Eyre actually takes a lot from Pamela. And it's funny, I think unless you're in school, Pamela is something that you just don't really read. Um, but a lot of the same devices and the same plot structure sort of came from that. So I think having an understanding, you know, of kind of literature more broadly, but also just these specific stories that may have been drawn from in different ways, just kind of gives a, a better appreciation for, okay, these were not just random fluke books that were amazing, but there's really kind of this holistic picture of all these books that go together to build a really uh, great story. And, and I think they're stronger looking at them all together. To talk a little bit more about Pamela, because I think probably a lot of our listeners, even those who are familiar with Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights might not be as familiar with that. Yeah, so you're going to have to forgive me because I read Pamela about 15 years ago. <laughs> so my, my knowledge of it is not 
what it once used to be. Um, but it is a similar story of this kind of downtrodden governess in this uh, house with this man who's, you know, not, I mean, you know, he's very much the kind of Byronic uh, hero that, that Jane Eyre, um, you know, has as well. Um, and it's kind of her, you know, it's, it's uh, I think it's an epistolary novel, but it's her kind of struggle and, and how she goes through, um, you know, uh, that story with him there. And it's very similar to Jane Eyre in that sense. Um, what, it, what I always thought was missing from Pamela, which I think Jane Eyre does much better and is actually, I would say, probably why it's, it's survived more. It's just Jane is such a uh, more resilient stronger, more, you know, feminist character. And it was probably, I mean, Pamela, in my mind, was probably more realistic to what it was actually like, you know, living men uh, as a woman. But I think Jane Eyre, the reason we love it is because there's this heroine who's like, you know what, uh, just a really strong and powerful and independent despite all the odds. Well, and it's interesting because I, I wasn't familiar with Pamela. And one of our readers who's going to come on later to talk about the book with me, Tui Sutherland, was the one who caught caught that reference and brought it up to me. But I was more familiar with Rebecca, and I read that also probably more than 15 years ago. I think I was in like eighth grade when I read it, but it yeah. stayed with me. Um, and, uh, and I was really struck by the parallels between um, Jane Eyre and Rebecca, which is, of course, the story of also this young, innocent woman who comes to this grand estate, not as a governess, but as a second wife to this very wealthy man. Um, and the house is in some ways haunted by the specter of his first wife, who... Um, has this devoted servant who is still there and who is constantly talking about the first Mrs. De Winter and how much she kind of haunts right. the whole novel uh, in, in some ways the same way that Bertha Mason haunts Jane Eyre. Um, and so I, you know, I very much picked up on this, this kind of recurring theme of these, you know, these young, innocent, naive girls who are coming to this house where there's a very strong male character uh, and, and often this servant who, um, who keeps that that ghost of the other female very front and center. Mm -hmm. But the one that I was struck by was really The Wizard of Oz, because um, while the Pamela and, the, um, and, and, and Rebecca and Jane Eyre all had these kind of obvious ways that they were similar, um, The Wizard of Oz didn't, and yet the more I thought about it, the more it made sense to me as an allegory. And I don't know if you want to comment on that. Yeah, I mean, for me, the most um, the most powerful part of Wizard of Oz is just the idea that truth and knowledge and, and the, the things the things you know to be true really come from within. And it's you know you can look externally for for um, a lot of answers, but sort of just I mean, obviously the movie made this very famous. You know, you know, click your heels three times and you had the power within you all along. I think that's a lot of what Samantha realizes um, also uh, in her own journey. You know, uh, the 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 her analysis of the books, I mean, she was capable of that all along. You know, it just took the inspiration and the realization that she was actually much more powerful than she thought. I was thinking to myself, you know, in some ways, I feel like the the kernel of the book, that this idea that it's this journey of self-discovery is almost obscured by everything that's going on with the connections with the Brontes, with this kind of literary scavenger hunt. And there's a lot of discussion of these questions of authorial intent and, and textual integrity um, and I was I was walking to pick up my kids from school and thinking like you know what is this book really about, and and I and I was thinking about how you know the Wizard of Oz is both this important book that her father gives her as a Christmas present one year, and at the end, when she discovers um, Anne Bronte's diary, which is in fact something that her father had and had kept and is gifting to her in this mysterious way. Um, she says it is. It's, there's a reference in the book where she says it was like it's like Dorothy. It was here all along. Um, and then I was thinking about how, you know, even beyond that question of like something being there all along, it seemed to me, you know, Dorothy's on this journey 
um, a very literal journey of, you know, the yellow brick road. But when I started thinking about Samantha's story in those terms of this kind of journey to find out what home is and where she belongs, the whole book made more sense to me. And to me, that was a, a, a key that really unlocked. And then the more I thought about it, the more I saw other parallels with the Wizard of Oz as well. I mean, you have the Wicked Witch of the West, who is sort of the, her own mad woman, right? And right. you have the wizard, who is this strong male figure, but who in some ways is a humbug, um, right? a fake. And and there's ways that he, I think, connects to Orville, um, who is Samantha's tutor and whom she, with whom she falls in love in the novel, um, and Mr. Rochester right. and, uh, and other strong male figures in this book like that. So it was yeah, just very interesting know, to me. It's great that um, I love that you sort of um, put this everything together like that. I, I thought, um, and again, this goes back to your previous question, but throwing in a lot of um, other kind of literature that's relevant to this book um, was really the fun part. Not explaining it, but sort of putting it out there and seeing what connections people can make was actually was really fun. So I, I really appreciate that comment. I want to go back to something you said earlier about Jane Eyre as a strong feminist character and how people relate to her and and. Uh, well, relate to her and I think and, and really focus on her as, as such an important heroine of literature because of it. Samantha, for a lot of the book, is a very passive character. And in fact, right. I was talking earlier to my fellow readers, Tui, as I mentioned, and our other reader, Sophronia, um, and they'll be joining me later in the show. Uh, but I was talking about the ways I see Samantha as similar to Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. And Sophronia said, I'm going to quote her email because it's quite fabulous. She said, it's like if instead of journeying to Oz, Dorothy stays in her room in Kansas the whole time, whining and complaining because she's got to go somewhere, but she doesn't want to go because it's raining and she's annoyed that witch keeps throwing rocks at her window and threatening her dog. And <laughs> <laughs> so I think when you have a very passive character like Samantha, you run the risk of having your readers get annoyed by her. And I'm curious as how you as a writer navigate that as you're writing. Yeah, you know, I think, um, I mean, in terms of the passivity, I guess, in terms of, uh, you know, Samantha being stuck in one place and not going on this journey, um, I was actually inspired by the Brontes in some sense. Um, I mean, you look at someone like Emily Bronte, who had very few friends, did not really go out of the house very much. I think she had one small sense of governess. Uh, actually, I have to, to double check that. But for the most part, she stayed on the moors, which was spectacularly isolated in this little, um, obviously, tiny town here was in the middle of the Yorkshire moors. Um, and yet, she managed to produce amazing fiction that kind of um, uh, was way above and beyond the scope of what she actually lived. Um, and so I think like, yeah, you can be sitting in a house completely alone and not <laughs> having many friends and loving the company of your pets and still actually not be that passive through the work that you're creating. And I think the struggle that Samantha faces is she has this very reluctant appreciation of the Brontes literature and she's been so scarred by a lot of the things that's happened in the past that she doesn't really feel that she has agency um, over a lot of what happens to her. And I think, um, you know, as obviously as the book goes on, she does get more adventuresome. She goes out to the, the, the Hayworth. She goes back and has this experience with as well, et cetera. But I think that is her kind of jumping out of passivity and trying to take a more active role. There are a number of revelations throughout the course of the book. And, uh, you know, again, spoiler alert for those who are listening, go read the book first. <laughs> um, but among them, uh, one of the very few people with whom she interacts at Oxford, a fellow student named Hans, turns out to be a student reporter who has been writing all these articles about her as the last living descendant of the Bronte now at Oxford. Um, uh, we also find out that her tutor, Orville, um, is the son of the curator of the Bronte Museum, who had a very oppositional relationship with her father, and that was not known to yeah. her. Um, 
I did not realize those things as I was going along. To me, they were revelations. But both Sophronia and Tui spoke to me about how they had seen those things coming. I wondered to you how much you intended them to be revelatory and how much it wasn't important that they were. I, in our last show, we talked about a great new novel called Girl Through Glass by Sari Wilson. Um, and it is told from two points of view, uh, a young young girl in the 1970s in New York who's studying ballet, um, and then an older woman who's an academic professor of dance studies uh, told in the present day. And it doesn't get revealed to quite late in the book that they're really the same person. But it was mm, it was kind of obvious to me. It was kind of obvious to me from about page thirty. So I asked her that same question. You know, there are clues that were dropped. Was it in, so? You know, did you did you care if people picked up on that, or did you want it to be a huge surprise? And I guess that's my same question to you. Yeah, you know, that's um, that's an interesting question. I uh, I feel like as a reader, I'm always the person who's looking for what's coming and like, oh, but that's going to be this person's wife or like, you know, this trying to almost like piece together the, the revelations before they happen. And I, I hate it about myself because I can never really just appreciate the surprises when they do happen. Um, so I would say, uh, I mean, and again, it's true with me too. Half my friends saw it coming, half of them didn't see it coming. I don't, I don't necessarily care as much whether people were shocked or not. Um, it is what it is. Um, but I thought it was just fun kind of playing little clues along the way for people who are interested you know they can go with it for people who aren't they can enjoy the surprise so as i told you before we started talking um on the show i always talk about the whole book including the endings because yeah. i like to say that i feel like you can't talk about what a book means without talking about the ending i really feel like endings often give meaning to the whole book and mm-hmm. I felt like your novel really endorsed my idea, so that was good for me. Um, <laughs> there's a line I particularly loved on page 235 when the mistress of Samantha's father, whose name is Rebecca, says of her father, when I read of the fire, I knew he had won. He had turned his life into art. It was a well-crafted ending to an otherwise structurous life, a perfect catastrophic death, which I read as saying, you know, in other words, that his death gave a kind of shape and meaning to the whole narrative that came before. And mm-hmm. without that ending, the shape and the meaning of the narrative would be entirely different. So right. I want to hear your thoughts on that. And then also specifically, whether you feel it's true in the case of your novel, if the ending, and in particular, the very last page, which is sort of an epilogue, is critical to understanding the book. Yeah, you know, that's, um, uh, I, I totally agree with you. I think the, the engine really does uh, help define the, the shape of, of a novel and how we interpret it. Um, I think for me, you know, the whole book to me is, is really about, you know, truth in fiction. And even if something is not factually true, can it be true emotionally? Um, you know, is it, it's possible, you know, that Samantha invented Orville just like another work of fiction, another work of art. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily make it less true or less real. Um, so I guess in terms of how I interpret the epilogue, you know, in my mind, yes, I do see them as getting together. But I also see this as her story that, that may be actually somewhat unreliable in terms of the, the factual sense, but uh, it's true emotionally because she's made it this lasting piece of art, if that makes sense. So, it's, um, so in my mind, you know, it does kind of connect the dots on, you know, why the Brontes have lasted this long and, you know, especially Rebecca's love for her father and the ending that she crafts for that. I think we do craft a lot of things in our own mind as art and that gives them truth and reality. So we should say that in the epilogue, it, 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 it ends with, a, you know, the quote of reader, I married him. And it says that down the line in the future, Samantha does end up marrying her Tudor Orville. But at least for me, 
there was this question as to whether or not uh, we could trust Samantha as a narrator, um, or right. whether this is an, an, a, a story she has invented. Um, and I was torn about which way to take it because um, on the one hand, I felt like in some ways what it was showing us was she was seizing control of her own story, her own her power mm-hmm. to tell her narrative. And so she has the power to tell the narrative that she wants to tell. At the same right. time, the story that she wants to tell is one that has, you know, ends with a happy marriage. And so what does that say about her ultimate empowerment? Yeah, you know, I think, well, first of all, the reason um, the, the reader I married him is in there is it's, it's obviously it's one of the most famous lines right. from Jane Eyre, but it really is Jane's moment, too, of seizing control. It's not he married her, it's I married him. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that she had choice in the matter um, and that if she was taking it into her own hands, she did not have to come back to Thornfield Hall to marry Rochester. It was of her own volition. I think that actually does give her tons of power, even if ultimately she ends up being in a marriage. I don't think marriage necessarily takes away female power. I actually think, especially, you know, if you find the right partners it's a good team you can actually build something way more meaningful and, and and much much larger than yourself in a way so i don't see marriage necessarily as this you know oh like you're less of a feminist or you know you're, you you have given given up lots of control but i think it is really important that she's the one who's crafting her narrative for herself instead of someone else doing it for her and i wanted to ask you too about the fact that the novel's title is the mad woman upstairs and you know again this is in jane eyre the mad woman in the attic is Mr. Rochester's first wife, whom Jane right. does not know is there for a very long time. And there have been several <clears throat> famous novels that have focused <clears throat> on her, Wide Sargasso yeah. Sea, of course. And yeah. um, and as you know, Samantha <clears throat> even talks about in the in the in your novel, there's references to how she as this first wife Bertha has become a symbol of feminism, of repressed sexuality, of the you know the pent up woman who cannot be strong and is therefore seen as yeah. mad by and 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 put in the attic. I found it interesting that in some ways Samantha is a conflation of of Jane and Bertha. Um, you know, she is mm-hmm. both the innocent one who comes to the to Oxford, but <clears throat> excuse me, she uh, is also the one who is in the attic as the madwoman. And again, if that conflation was intentional on your part, if it was always there. Um, I think so, for sure. I think, uh, I mean, my favorite uh, evaluation of the Madwoman is, is what you mentioned, um, uh, the White Targasso Sea, because she does come in as this, you know, normal lady who is locked up in an attic and therefore she goes crazy. I think it's so, so much more interesting to look at madness as something that's been created by an outside forces versus something that's just inherent within you. Obviously, there are certain cases where it's, it's, it's you know, one or the other. Um, but I think especially in the, in the context of the 19th century governess, I think that the experience of a woman coming into that situation first and then experiencing the results is, is fascinating. So with Samantha, yeah, I did, I did sort of see it as, um, you know, her experiencing all sides of that equation. And, and I, mean, I mean, it's up to debate, too, like whether she is in fact mad or that she's just been driven mad. Um, but I think that's the question in all these books, too, actually. So I want to end with something that actually is on your website. Um, you, were, you, you quote, uh, there's a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson saying, there's creative reading as well as creative writing. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And I wonder if we can just close with you talking a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, that's, um, well, I just love that quote. And I've, I've loved it for a long time. Um, as I, I mentioned at the beginning, you know, a big, uh, 
uh, driving force for me to write this novel. I've just always been so interested in, in how you read books. Um, and especially, you know, when I um, was first starting to think about writing this novel, I was an undergrad and I was really trying to decide what to major in. <laughs> and I'd always had this inkling that I studied English, but it was a very obviously engineering dominated campus. If you're in Silicon Valley, if you're an English major, you're sort of instantly disrespected. And I found myself, you know, really trying to justify the point of English literature to myself over and over again. Um, and I just kept coming back to, you know, what are the practical ways we can use English literature. Um, and I kept, you know, also coming to the question, you know, can the skills you learn reading a book really help you become a better problem solver in, in other areas of your life? Um, and so I was really starting to read all these books that I was reading for classes. It's more of a, you know, okay, how else can I read this? Obviously, you know, reading books and novels gives you empathy. Um, it gives you a greater understanding of people and, and um, you know, the larger world. But I just kind of wondered, okay, what else? <laughs> you know, what's, like, how would an engineer read a novel, for example? What, what what are the things you can get out of it? So I think in terms of creative reading, I just thought the rereading process and trying to find, you know, really exciting, interesting nuggets that are maybe um, not seen to, to people who don't read closely. I thought that was just so fun and so interesting. So I, I, that's, uh, I think, for me, the reason that that quote resonated so much. And uh, for me, that what you say brings up a line that you give to Rebecca in the novel, who is a math professor, again, uh, Samantha's father's former lover. Um, but she says... Uh, she says, I saw myself in you, even when you were a spoiled child, alone and friendless, loved by only one person, but loved so strongly it felt like the love of the entire world. I found my therapy in math, just as you seem to have found yours in literature, two disciplines that help make sense of the world. And so it seems to me that, you know, that gets to what you were just saying of what can reading give us? It's just like engineering or math, something that helps us Definitely. make sense of the world. Well, Catherine, yeah. it has been great talking with you. Thank you so much for great joining me. Great talking to you. Thanks for the great questions. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. I want to take a moment to introduce my guests, Tui Sutherland and Sophronia Scott. In addition to being my college roommate, Tui is the author of the best-selling Wings of Fire series, as well as many other wonderful books. She is making her second appearance on Book Talk. Sophronia is an essayist, short story writer, and author of the novel All I Need to Get By. This is her first time on Book Talk. I thought Tui and Sophronia, as writers themselves, would have particularly interesting things to say about a book that is so much about how and why we read and write. Tui and Sophronia, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Sid. Thanks so much, Sid. I'm excited to be here. So as you heard me say during the interview with Catherine, I really felt like this book was a coming-of-age story and that The Wizard of Oz functioned as an allegory because Samantha's going on a journey much as Dorothy is going on a journey, even if Samantha's is a metaphorical one. But as you both rightly pointed out in some earlier exchanges we had, Samantha is quite passive. And the book more or less starts and ends in the same physical place at Oxford. We can talk more about the epilogue shortly. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on whether or not you think Samantha has in fact moved at all during this journey and if she's ended up any place different than she has begun. Yeah, I definitely think, so I think actually the most important journey that she's on in this book is coming to terms with the grief over her father's death. And I think that that is something that she definitely has accomplished sort of by the end of the book. And I feel like most of what's happening for her is that she's looking for something like the, her whole attraction to the Bronte estate and to like what secrets might be hiding in the novels is because she's looking for a message from her father. She even says that at one point in the book. She's like, I really just want meaning. I want to find out like what he left for me. She wants some connection to him still. And by the end of the book, 
you're sort of left with like she's come to terms with like it's not about a thing it's not about like the painting or the diary that he left behind it's about like just leaving in that truth of the, of the connection that they had and sort of like you know still having that but like being able to move on with her life i think yes i i agree with you Tui. this is sophronia you know i feel that a journey you know catherine uh, points this out in her interview that you don't have to leave your room to go on a journey. So I think it's okay that she starts in that tower and ends in that tower. But, um, but the point is, as you said, she could wrestle with these things uh, within the room of her own mind. And she does that to a certain extent. It takes her a little while to get going. But, uh, but I agree. I think she had a lot to uh, handle there with her father and his death. I yeah. agree, I I agree with that. that. Catherine... I'm sorry. Go okay, ahead, so Julie. Catherine actually says, like, truth and knowledge come from within, not externally, no matter how much you're looking for it externally. And I feel like that's sort of the metaphor, not just of her relationship with her father, but of what she gets out of literature, too. Um, that it's not about, like, sort of the external things around the book. It's about, like, just what's in the book. Um, and I feel like that's something that Samantha has to kind of come to terms with over the course of the novel. I think that the... Um, that issue of, you know, coming to terms with her father's, with the grief around her father's death. It's not just her grief around his death, but it's an attempt to understand him. And I think what she, what, what ends up happening is not so much that she understands him, but that she comes to understand that it is a process and that she is not going to reach a final and conclusive understanding of him, but it will evolve as she learns more and also as she herself grows and changes and as she you know, kind of reaches the age that her father has been, she will understand him differently than she understood him than when she was a little girl. Yes, and there's a limitation to what she can truly understand, right? Because her father is an alcoholic. You know, there is, um, there's a part of him that she will never truly understand because he, in a certain way, was never really himself with her because of that addiction. But what she can do is come to a certain acceptance of, of her role in the relationship and how she feels about him and feeling uh, okay with um, her, her emotions of closeness to him. Yeah, and not just being obsessed with it. Sort of, I feel like there's a parallel with um, Sir John and how he's been obsessed with the Bronte estate and has let it take over his life. And so she needs to not let that suck her in as well. Like her mother says something about like this conversation is just beginning with your father. But I feel like there's a, there's a feeling of like, but you're, but you're moving on with your, you're still going to have your life and this isn't going to be the all consuming thing that takes it over. Um, and I think what Sophronia was saying about his alcoholism and that prevents her from really knowing him. She also comes to terms with the idea that someone doesn't have to be all good or all bad. And there's a number of times when, you know, people tell her that her father was not a good man. And she at one point then says, you know, but he was a great dad. And she, I think, is able to reconcile those things and understand that he could have been a bad husband and a bad lover and maybe even a bad writer or um, a bad, uh, you know, inheritor of the Bronte estate. But he could still have loved her and that love could be real and true, even if flawed. And, and that felt to me like an important journey to, to, to be on. Yeah. And again, I feel like it parallels the journey with the literature question, because the, the whole thing about truth in fiction, can it be true emotionally, even if it's not like factually true? Like she's getting sort of the emotional truth of her father, um, the way they talk about getting to the emotional truth of books. You know, she's like, this, you know, regardless of all these other things, that there's still something that's emotionally true about about her relationship with him. Um, and isn't that what writing, I mean, to me, a good book 
is full of emotional truth. That is what the reader reacts to, reacts to. And that's what uh, makes a book stay with us is, is we feel it. Even if um, the words on the page, you know, we disagree with it or we disagree with the characters, but if it rings emotionally true, uh, we will, we will be there with the author. And as Tui knows, um, one of my favorite writers is Tim O'Brien, and I have quoted him on this show before because apparently I basically have three influences, Tim O'Brien, my college professor Jim Shepard, and my high school English teacher Dr. Shapiro, who I all plan to reference in, during this show, um, but nobody else. And Tim O'Brien in his wonderful The Things They Carried, it, you know, that book is all about um, emotional truth versus literal truth. And there's a wonderful line in it where he says, the hardest thing to learn when writing fiction, the facts don't necessarily equal the truth. And in in this in this one story in that book, How to Tell a True War Story, he keeps changing the facts because he keeps trying to make people understand what he felt and trying to impart the idea that you can change the facts if you can get across what you were trying to feel because that's the message, that's the literature. And I've known a lot of people who've read that and responded really negatively to it. But I think that that is what Catherine Lowell is getting at here and what she believes and what Samantha kind of comes to believe as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think that ref is reflected in her ideas about the Brontes, too. Like, she doesn't necessarily want to read Anne's diary and find out the factual truth of their lives because she has this emotional belief in them. She has, they've been sort of her imaginary friends almost her whole life. Um, and to read the diary would change that for her. Like, she, she kind of wants to keep them emotionally the way they are in her head. Right. And we should say that, I think we said this in the interview, I can't remember actually, but that at the end of the novel, she does discover Anne's diary, which has been passed down to her from her father. What I thought was interesting about the diary is it's not just that she doesn't want to read it because I think, you know, she's afraid that the literal facts will conflict with what she has come to feel is true. But many of the pages of the diary have been ripped out. She, you know, particularly comments on that. And I think that that, again, is almost metaphorical for this idea that we can never get to the whole truth of someone's life. You know, there are always going to be parts that are missing. And that's true of her father as well. She knows certain side of him. She knows the side of him that was her father. But he has all these other stories, the story of his relationship with Rebecca, the story of his relationship with her mother, and then all the other stories that came before and even during that she will never have true access to. And so you can under you can get a piece of it, but that piece may actually in some ways be less true than you know, the emotional truth that you've arrived at because so much else is missing. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Sorry, Timmy. Uh, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a point where, you know, the part, she does read a small portion of the diary and she says that it's, it's pretty bland. And, you know, <laughs> and, and that kind of confirms also a little bit of what, you know, of what she's read before as well. But she realizes, you know, with the missing pages, that it's, it still puts her in the same exact place. You know, as you say, Sid, there are things that she will never really know. But I like the fact that she makes a very strong choice to accept that. I wanted to talk a little yeah. bit about the role of men in this book. Um, because it was, it was an interesting inversion to me that the men are presented in some ways as the people with power. Um, you know, you have Orville, her tutor, who is in this position of authority with regard to her. Uh, you have Sir James, who um, curates the Bronte estate. You have her father, who just even even with all his flaws, by by dint of being her father, is in this sort of position of power, and she feels very bound to to him. Um, and, and you know, he's also her teacher. Like, I mean, explicitly her teacher. He homeschools her, um, and yet these men all ultimately like 
fall apart before our eyes and and ultimately kind of implode. I mean, even Orville, his career is destroyed when he has to leave Oxford because he's accused of impropriety with her and he's had a previous accused impropriety with another student. Um, Sir James uh, is, you know, has kind of frittered away his life on trying to discover these Bronte artifacts that probably don't exist. And her father, of course, literally dies in a in a fire that may be of his own making and before that had really dissipated in alcohol. And so I really feel like there was not one male who was presented as being strong, even though the world sees them as strong. And at the same time, she resists the females in her life. She doesn't seek to befriend anyone, um, not a female student. Uh, she becomes estranged from her mother. She never really embraces her mother, refuses to go live with her after her father's death. And uh, even with uh, the woman, Rebecca, who was her math tutor, again, this was a, a relationship that she resisted. So even though she had uh, the potential for strong female friendship, she still felt drawn to these flawed men. But I think that her mother, in some ways, is the real hero of the story. You know, I was really struck by the moment when she does go to visit her mother in Paris at one point in the book. And her mother has both, you know, made this bedroom for her uh, and, and has, you know, is clearly wants to be a mother to her. But the moment that I was struck by is her mother brings her this mug of hot chocolate. And we've already been set up to know that, like, that's what Samantha likes to drink. Like, she doesn't want tea and she doesn't want coffee, but she likes hot chocolate. And it, for me, was this moment of saying, like, I'm your mother, like, I know you. I know you and I love you and I want to tend you and I want to caretake you and take care of you. I don't think caretake is really a verb. But, um, you know, and and to me it was like she was that hero figure of the person who who really wanted to do the right thing and knew and understood. And she is the one who comes at the end when Samantha you know, goes into the well, she, yeah, there's a well on Oxford property and she thinks perhaps her father has thrown something down the well and she goes down to retrieve it and she gets sick. Her mother comes, right? Her mother comes right away and she does all the things a mother should do. Like she's sitting there by her bedside and like, you know, patting her blankets and bringing her soup and, and all of these things that are the things a mother should do. And I think even though it's very subtle, she is really presented as a, as a heroine. Yeah, that's interesting because I feel like a lot of Samantha's isolation um, is supposed to reflect the Bronte's isolation, um, and I guess sort of their characters too, but most of all, I mean, Catherine talks about that in her interview, how she was imagining the Bronte's, like, just, they, they really did spend most of their life, like, home just them, like, and they didn't go out and interact with the world very much, um, and and I'm not, and like, the mother is kind of this wonderful, like, anchor to the real world um, that the Bronte's didn't have. And uh, so it's interesting that she, that you're, I, I think you're right. She plays a very important role um, in kind of separating Samantha's life from the Bronte's life. Like and not just the Bronte's, but those other literary influences we talked about as well. You know, in Rebecca, um, I believe the, the second Mrs. De Winter is also an orphan, or at least her, her family, she doesn't seem to have any family. They're never mentioned. Um, and in, in, of course, in Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, her parents are dead. She's an orphan living with her aunt and uncle. Um, and yeah. so it's all these stories of motherless and fatherless uh, children. Um, and I think, you know, but we're, but it's funny because Samantha resists that at one point someone calls her an orphan and she says, I have a mother who's alive. She, she acknowledges that even as she, um, even as she feels distant from her. But I think that distance from her is really about feeling a sort of misguided loyalty to her father, feeling like that her father wouldn't have wanted her to feel close to her mother. And especially when he dies this horrible death, 
that she has to remain loyal to him and to love her mother would be disloyal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because we only get a glimpse of that period of time right after her dad dies and her mother comes to take care of her. And it seems like, so. The, and the glimpse is very much through the lens of Samantha trying to be a writer um, and how she keeps reading her terrible stories to her mother and her mother very patiently, like, puts up with it for a long time until she's reading her a story called, like, Life is Pain, Mother. <laughs> I, was like, that's, I was like, that's hilariously, not just adolescent, but the way adults see adolescents. Like, that's exactly what we think all teenagers are writing, you know, which is, I think, a little unfair to teenagers. <laughs> but um, but I thought it was, you know, interesting that, like, her mother kind of watches her spiral into this, like, what her father was like, and is, and I, I think really wants to rescue her from that, in a way. But it's interesting, too, because Samantha highlights that moment as like my horrible mother who couldn't understand my project and rejected it. And, you know, because eventually when she's reading her that final story of life is pain, her mother's like, enough, cut it out. It's enough. Yeah. Um, but then when her, when she goes to see her mother in Paris, like one of the first questions her mother asks her is like, how is your writing going? And to me, this got to the point of this, the unreliable narrator. I think that um, in some ways we get these glimpses of her mom as this, you know, kind nurturing person specifically to highlight how unreliable as a narrator Samantha is. Yeah. Yeah, she's very much an, an adolescent in that way where she sees the world uh, through her own glasses and you know, through that through that kind of melodrama as well, right? Even though she's about what 20 years old now, uh, she still very much has that teenage oh my mother doesn't understand me thing and and wants to stick to it as though it's part of her um, identity. Yeah, there's actually there's one moment like of like a, like a tiny glimmer of self-awareness that I that really caught me where she says I didn't realize how terribly sad she was, the mother, because at the time terribly sad like capitalized was something only I had ownership over. And so you can see there's like a, a hint of maybe one day <laughs> she, she she does actually know that there's, you know, that 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 her mother's a real person and like they can get to that eventually. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that too, because did you notice that Samantha tended to react that way whenever anyone seemed to have um, an emotional pain that seemed to be on par with hers. You know, she didn't mm. like it when other people had the same type of emotion around the, the Bronte. She couldn't stand it to see um, someone um, be as into something as, as she was. And it very much seemed like only she could have such emotions. That's true. And oh my gosh, and it was very possessive about the Brontes too. She's like, this is not what Anne was like. This is what Charlotte was like. Like you don't like, <clears throat> and the way she's, I think this goes back to the unreliable narrator said how convinced she is of her narrative of the Brontes that like, um, she's like a hundred percent sure that Branwell is not the one who is in the fire. Um, and she says like, I know that someone who had been to a fire would have had more like emotional trauma afterwards because I know from personal experience. And yet, like, never in the book do we really see her having, like, I mean, any leftover lingering fire problems, really, that I can remember. I think that that um, both reflects, again, her adolescence and, and, and is very much meant to be seen as, as, you know, she is coming of age and she is not of age yet. But I also think that it has to do with the fact that she feels that the Brontes are what her father left her. And so if other people have possession of that, it dilutes her inheritance. And when she has so little of her father, she needs to hold on to that and make it her own. And seen in that light, I think it's a little more sympathetic. Oh, I agree. And, yeah. and perhaps no. that... 
Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I agree with that. And perhaps that's why I wanted her to to grasp that more and and dig into that more and try to 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 figure out um, that connection uh, with the Brontes and what it was that her father had left her, you know, instead of feeling so um, possessive of it. It, it was like she was possessive, but not willing to take possession. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, and I certainly don't begrudge her that possessiveness. I actually thought it did make her sort of sympathetic that she, because, well, again, I mean, I, I sort of feel like they're not so much, I mean, she thinks of them as real people, but they really kind of were her imaginary friends. I actually really loved all the scenes where she talks about um, imagining herself, like, in the house, like, hanging out with Emily and Anne um, and imagining what the older siblings were like and their their fantasy worlds and how they created them together. Like, I thought that was, for me, the strongest part of the book was yes. her, um, you know, her imagining of what the Brontes were really like. Uh, I thought that was really fun and kind of fascinating. Yeah, and, you know, and it made sense because she is isolated even as a child. You know, her father chooses to homeschool her, and, and we don't get the sense that she has much connection with other people her age. And so she can in some ways relate to these children who are isolated on the, on the moors and they, um, and, and they, uh, and they become her playmates because she needs imaginary playmates when she doesn't have real ones. Yeah, exactly. I wanted yeah, to ask you guys what you made of the ending. So at, in the epilogue, so the, the book essentially ends when, Orville is leaving Oxford. Um, there has been this scandal around his relationship with Samantha, um, which is mostly unfounded, even though we know that he has kissed her, at least according to Samantha. Um, and he uh, and he is going to leave and go to Ireland. And so his very promising career has been derailed. And he says, nothing can happen with us. Um, and I must go and, you know, honor my profession. Uh, and then there's this very, very short epilogue where she says, as we talked about in the interview, reader, I married him, you know, several years later, and we were married, and I wrote several memoirs, and he edited all the drafts, and it's left with that. I'm curious for both of your takes on that, whoever wants to begin. Well, you know, what's funny is, after I listened to the interview you sent, where you talked to Catherine, um, I went back and reread the end of the book, and she, she makes a mention of Samantha as the unreliable narrator. And what I thought was actually super fascinating is in the last couple of pages before the epilogue, you know, where he's like, nothing can happen, you have to leave. And she starts to walk away. And then she turns around and says, I hope you know that you've left me no other choice but to become a writer. I will have to invent an alternate ending to this. Um, and then all of a sudden he comes over. It's like a strange thing happens. He seemed different, like a portrait I had painted that was now stepping out of the canvas to show me my work. And then he comes over and he kisses her. And she's like, It's a strange, externally mandated and crushing inevitability. He whispered something to her that I thought so soft and sweet that I thought perhaps I was narrating the scene myself. And it is almost like suddenly there's this moment where she she steps in. It almost feels like she's writing this ending herself. And I was like, is that... Is, are we supposed to believe this? Like, is this actually true? Like, I mean, now I have a mo- now I'm kind of like, is she so unreliable that maybe this alternate ending is something she wrote herself? There's so many clues suddenly in these last couple paragraphs. And then again, also in the epilogue. Yeah, you're right. Um, it, it was just so uh, melodramatic. It was so out there that, <laughs> that, that when it was almost like, so she could set up, like she had to say the reader, I married him. I mean, you can't write the Bronte book without doing that. So she had to, to mm-hmm. you know, work her way towards that. And and you're right. It just seems so, you know, technicolor, you know, a movie star type of thing. It was very odd. 
But at the same time, you know, I was thinking that about a lot of the writing in this book. I was wondering, you know, sometimes it just went out there in a very uh, over-the-top way. And I was just wondering, well, maybe this is um, the tongue-in-cheek way that Samantha had of, of dealing with the world, that she actually started writing her own narrative. And we know from her own admission that she is not a good writer. <laughs> And in fact, and in fact, right at the, on the very last page, what she says is, I ended up writing two long form memoirs, which Orville complained lacked style and artistry and any semblance of a, re of, re of a realistic ending. And I agree with you, too. I mean, that that line where she says, um, I, will ha I will have to invent an alternate ending to this. I was like, I had like my ears sort of pricked up. I was like, really? And then when she says that line in the epilogue about, you know, any semblance of a realistic ending, I thought, oh, like, again, we're being highlighted that she is an unreliable narrator. And I, I was really struck when Catherine said in the interview that she likes to believe that Orville and Samantha ended up together because I thought, I don't really think they do. I think Samantha would like to believe that, but I didn't buy it. Um, yeah. and, but I thought that kind of worked because I thought that, among, you know, we started out this conversation by talking about the journey Samantha was on. And I agree that a lot of it's about coming to terms with her father's death and her relationship with her mother. But I think some of it's about finding her own voice and, and feeling able to take control of her own narrative. And so even, you know, it, it's highlighting the fact that, yeah, maybe this didn't really happen, but she is choosing to take control of her own narrative and tell it the way that she wishes to tell it. And in some sense, she is empowered. Yeah. Well, and it's emotionally true, right? She's like, so even if these fictional characters didn't quote really end up together, like we emotionally, like Samantha emotionally wants it to be true. So this is the truth for us. It's kind of like life of pie in a way. <laughs> like, what do you want the ending to be? How do you want this really to have happened? Exactly. And in that way, I, th I think we should applaud Catherine Lowell, right, for pulling off something like that. It's it's very clever in terms of the writing. Um, and I think it works on uh, several different levels, right? Uh, we have uh, you know, the ordinary reader who, who can read this and get a kick out of the fact that they ended up together. But then on a different level, uh, you have people who are very steeped in the Bronte um, uh, the whole Bronte uh, book and style of writing and can look at this and question it and be compelled in another way um, in this text. Well, that seems like a good moment to end on. I did not get to talk about Jim Shepard or Dr. Shapiro, but I promise I will next time. Um, <laughs> Jane and Sophronia, it's been great talking with you. I hope you'll both come back to Book Talk soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Sid. I know I'll come back. Thanks, Sid. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Next up, New Haven librarian Margaret Gerges offers our middle grade pick of the week. Hi, this is Margaret, the teen librarian at the New Haven Free Public Library, and I'm here to share a summary of a book that I read that is really exciting I'd like everybody else to enjoy as well. Melanie is in prison, not a regular one, a special one for kids like her, anomalies, freaks, what have you. Melanie's a zombie, but not just any zombie. While most zombies become eating machines with no ability to think, create, or communicate, Melanie and her classmates are just like other children. They think, they talk, and in Melanie's case, they love. It's been 20 years since chaos erupted and zombies took over the world. Cities are gone and military bases are the only safe places to live. Roaming zombies attack and make travel between bases nearly impossible. Melanie's prison is just such a base. Here, she and a few other unusual zombie children are caged and tested by scientists desperate to figure out what happened to destroy the world they once knew. 
But when the base is attacked and their defenses compromised, Melanie, her beloved teacher, a hostile prison guard, and a dedicated scientist must make their way across the wasteland formerly known as civilization to the nearest base for shelter. Can they make it? Will the other zombies get to them? Or is their biggest enemy right there among themselves? Pick up a copy of Girl with All the Gifts by M.R. Carey in the Teen Center at the Ives Main Library at 133 Elm Street in New Haven. Thanks, Margaret. On the next episode of Book Talk, airing April 6th, we'll be talking about the novel Every Anxious Wave, first with the author, Mo Davio, and then with my fellow readers, returning guest Alfie Guy and WNHH's own Brian Slattery. It's a crazy mashup of time travel, rock music, and literary fiction, and it's going to be great. Go get it from the New Haven Free Public Library today and start reading now. As ever, you can share your thoughts with us on Facebook and Twitter or email me directly at booktalkwnhh at gmail.com. Until then, happy reading.